Today, it's H.L. Lewis, the only native Oregonian to win the Pulitzer Prize. If you're fond of Oregon, get ready. You're on your way. So please, everyone, tuck in and enjoy Lewis's masterpiece short story, Open Winter. The drying east wind, which always brought hard luck to eastern Oregon at whatever season it blew, had combed down the plateau grasslands through so much of the winter that it was hard to see any sign of grass ever having grown on them. Even though March had come, it still blew, drying the ground deep, shrinking the watercourses beating back the clouds that might have delivered rain and grinding coarse dust against the fifty-odd head of workhorses that Pop Apling, with young Beach Cartwright helping, had brought down from his homestead to turn back into their home pasture while there was still something left of them. The two men, one past sixty and the other around sixteen, shouldered the horses through the gate of the home pasture about dark, with lights beginning to shine out from the little freighting town across Three Notch Valley. And then they rode for the ranch house, knowing, even before they drew up outside the yard, that they'd picked the wrong time to come. The house was too dark, and the corrals and outbuildings too still for a place that anybody lived in. There were sounds, but they were of shingles flapping in the wind, a windmill running loose and sucking noisily at a well that it had already pumped empty, a door that kept banging shut and dragging open again. The haystacks were gone. The stackyard fence had dwindled to a few naked posts, and the entire pasture was as bare and as hard as a floor all the way down into the valley. The prospects looked so hopeless that the herd horses refused even to explore it and merely stood with their tails turned to the wind, waiting to see what was to happen to them next. Old Apling went poking inside the house, thinking somebody might have left a note or that the men might have run down to the saloon in town for an hour or two. He came back, having used up all his matches, and stopped the door from banging and said, the place appeared to have been handed back to the government or maybe the mortgage company. Huh. You can trust old Ranger Race not to be any place where anybody wants him, Beach said. He had hired out to herd for Ranger Vase over the winter. That entitled him to be more critical than old Apling, who had merely contracted to supply the horse herd with feed and pasture for the season at so much per head. Well, my job was to help herd these steeds while you had them and to help deliver them back when you got through with them and here they are. I've put in a week on them that I won't ever get paid for. 
and it won't help anything to sit around and watch them try to live on fence pickets. Let's get out. Old Apling looked at the huddle of horses, at the naked slope with a glimmer of light still on it, and at the lights of the town twinkling in the wind. He said it wasn't his place to tell any man what to do and that he wouldn't feel quite right to dump the horses and leave. I agreed to see that they got delivered back here, and I'd feel better about it if I could locate somebody to deliver them to, he said. But that's the way it is. Well, the older man said, I'd like to ride across the town yonder and see if there ain't somebody that knows something about them. Now, you could hold them together here till I get back. We ought to look the fences over before we pull out, and you can wait here as well as anywhere else. I can't. But go ahead, Beach said. I don't like to have them stand around and look at me when I can't do anything to help them out. They'd have been better off if we'd turned them out at your homestead and just let them run loose on the country. There was more grass up there than there is here. No, no, no. There wasn't enough to feed them, and I'd have had all my neighbors down on me for it, old Abling said. You'll find out one of these days that if a man aims to live in this world, he's got to get along with the people in it. I'd start a fire and thaw out a little and get that pack horse unloaded, if I was you. He rode down the slope, leaning low and forward to ease the drag of the wind on his tired horse. Beach heard the sound of the road gate being let down and put up again, the beat of hoofs in the hard road, and then nothing but the noises around him as the wind went through its usual process of easing down for the night to make room for the frost. Loose boards settled into place, the windmill clacked to a stop and began to drip water into a puddle, and the herd horses shifted around, facing Beach, as if anxious not to miss anything he did. He pulled off some fence pickets and built a fire, unsaddled his pony and unloaded the pack horse and got out what was left of a sack of grain and fed them both, standing the herd horses off with a fence picket until they had finished eating. That was strictly fair, for the pack horse and the saddle horse had worked harder and carried more weight than any of the herd animals, and the grain was little enough to even them up for it. Nevertheless, he felt mean at having to club animals away from food when they were hungry and they crowded back and eyed the grain sack so wistfully that he carried it inside the yard and stored it down in the root cellar behind the house so it wouldn't prey on their minds. And then he dumped another armload of fence pickets onto the fire and <sighs> sat down to wait for old Apling. The original mistake, he reflected, had been when old Apling took the Gervais horses to feed at the beginning of winter. 
contracting to feed them had been well enough, for he had nursed up a stand of bunch grass on his homestead that would have carried an ordinary pack of horses with only a little extra feeding to help out in the roughest weather. But the Gervais horses were all big harness stock. They had pulled in half-starved, and they had taken not much over three weeks to clean off the pasture that old Abling had expected to last them two months. Nobody would have blamed him for backing out on his agreement then, since he'd only undertaken to feed the horses, not to treat them for malnutrition. Beach wanted him to back out of it, but he refused to. Said the stockmen had enough trouble without having that added to him, and started feeding out of his hay and insisting that the dry wind couldn't possibly keep up much longer because it wasn't in nature. By the time it became clear that nature had decided to take in a little extra territory, the hay was all fed out. And since there couldn't be any accommodation without letting the horses starve to death, he consented to throw the contract over and bring them back where they belonged. The trouble with most of old Apling's efforts to be accommodating was that they did nobody any good. His neighbors would have been spared all their uneasiness if he had never brought in the horses to begin with. Gervais wouldn't have been any worse off since he stood to lose them anyway. The horses could have starved to death as gracefully in November as in March, and old Apling would have been ahead a great deal of carefully accumulated bunch grass and two big stacks of extortionately valuable hay. Nobody had gained by his chivalrousness. He had lost by it. And yet he liked it so well that he couldn't stand to leave the horses until he had raked the country for somebody to hand the ruthless brutes over to. Beach fed sticks into the fire and felt out of patience with a man who could stick to his mistakes even after he'd been cleaned out by them. He heard the road gate open and shut, and he knew by the draggy-sounding plod of old Apling's horse that the news from town was going to be bad. Old Apling rode past the fire and over to the picket fence, got off as if he was trying to make it last, tied his horse carefully as if he expected the knot to last a month, and unsaddled, and did his lap to go, and followed his saddle blanket, and folded his saddle blanket, as if he was fixing them to put in a show window. He remarked that his horse had been given a bait of grain in town and wouldn't need feeding again. And then he began to work down to what he had found out. Yeah, well, if you think things look bad along this road, you ought to see, you ought to see that town. All the sheep gone and all the ranches deserted and no trade to run on. And their water threatening to give out. They've got a little herd of milk cows that they keep up for their children. And to hear them talk, you'd think it was an ammunition supply that they expected to stand off hostile Indians with. 
They said uh, Gervais pulled out of here around a month ago. All his men quit, so he just bunched his sheep and took them down to the railroad where he could ship in hay for them. Sheep will be a price this year, and you won't be able to buy a lamb for under $12 except at a fire sale. Horses ain't in much demand. There's been a lot of them turned out wild, and everybody wants to get rid of them. I didn't drive this bunch of pelters any 80 miles against the wind to get a market report, Beach said. You didn't find anybody to turn them over to, and Gervais didn't leave any word about what he wanted done with them. You've probably got it figured out that you ought to trail him 180 miles to the railroad so his feelings won't be hurt. And you're probably trying to study how you can work me in on it. And you might as well save your time. I've helped you with your accommodation jobs long enough. I've quit. And it would have been a whole lot better for you if I'd quit sooner. Old Apling said he could understand that state of feeling, which didn't mean that he shared it. <sighs> it wouldn't be as much of a trick to trail down to the railroad as a man might think, he said merely to settle a question of fact. We couldn't make it by the road in a starve-out year like this. But there's old Indian trails back on the ridge where any man has got a right to take livestock whenever he feels like it. Still, as long as you're set against it, I'll meet you. I'll meet you halfway. We'll trail these horses down the ridge to a grass patch where I used to corral cattle when I was in the business, and we'll leave them there. It'll be enough so they won't starve, and I'll ride on down and notify Gervais where they are, and you can go where you please. It wouldn't be fair to do less than that to my notion. Green Gervais triggered me out of a week's pay, Beach said. It ain't much. But he swindled you on that pasture contract, too. If you expect me to trail his broken-down horses 90 miles down this ridge when they ain't worth anything, you've turned in a poor guess. You'll have to think of a better argument than that if you aim to gain any ground with me. Now, Reem Gervais don't count in this, old Abling said. What does he care about these horses when he ain't even left word what he wants done with them? What counts is you and I don't have to think up any better argument because I've already got one. You may not realize it, but you and me are responsible for these horses till they're delivered to their owner. And if we turn them loose here to bust fences and overrun that town, and starve to death in the middle of it? We'll land in the pen. It's against the law to let horses starve to death. Did you know that? If you pull out of here, I'll pull out right along with you. And I'll have every man in that town after you before the week's out. You'll have a chance to get some action on that pistol of yours, if you're careful. Beach said he wasn't intimidated by that kind of talk, 
and threw a couple of handfuls of dirt on the fire so it wouldn't look so conspicuous. His pistol was an old single-action relic with its grips tied on with fish line and no trigger so that it had to be operated by flipping the hammer. The spring was weak so that sometimes it took several flips to get off one shot, suggesting that he might use such a thing to stand off any pack of grim-faced pursuers was about the same as saying that he was simple-minded. As far as he could see, his stand was entirely sensible and even humane. It ain't ain't that I don't feel sorry for these horses, but they ain't fit to travel, he said. They wouldn't last 20 miles. I don't see how it's any worse to let them stay here than to walk them to death down that ridge. Well, they make less trouble for people if you keep them on the move, old Abling said. It's something you can't be cinched for in court. And it makes you feel better afterwards to know that you tried everything you could. Suit yourself about it. I ain't begging you to do it. If you'd sooner pull out and stand the consequences, it's for you to do it. But before you go, what did you do with that sack of grain? Beach had a half notion to leave just to see how much of that dark threatening would come to pass. He decided it wouldn't be worth it. Mm, I'll help you trail the blame skates as far as they'll last, if you've got to be childish about it, he said. I put the grain in a root cellar behind the house so the rats wouldn't get into it. It looked like the only safe place around here. There was about half a ton of old sprouted potatoes ricked up in it that didn't look like they'd been bothered with for 20 years. They had sprouts on them. He stopped, noticing that old apeling kept staring at him as if something was wrong. Good Lord, potatoes ain't good for horse feed, are they? They had sprouts on them a foot long. Old apeling shook his head resignedly and got up. We wouldn't ever find anything if it wasn't for you, he said. And we wouldn't ever get any good out of it if it wasn't for me. Maybe we make a team. Show me where that root cellar is and we'll pack them spuds out and spread them around so the horses can get started on them. We'll get this herd through to grassland yet and it'll be something you'll never be ashamed of. It ain't everybody your age gets a chance to do a thing like this and you'll thank me for holding you to it before you're through. They climbed up by an Indian trail onto a high stretch of tableland, so stony and scored with rock breaks that nobody had ever tried to cultivate it, but so high that it sometimes caught moisture from the atmosphere that the lower elevations missed. Part of it had been doled out among the Indians as allotment lands, which none of them ever bothered to lay claim to, but the main spread of it belonged to the nation, which was too busy to notice much of it. The pasture was thin, though reliable, and it was so scantily watered and so rough and broken that in ordinary years nobody bothered to bring stock onto it. The open winter had spoiled most of that seclusion, 
There was no part of the trail that didn't have at least a dozen new bed grounds for lambed ewes in plain view, easily picked out of the landscape because of the little white flags stuck up around them to keep sheep from straying out and coyotes from straying in during the night. The sheep were pasturing down the draws out of the wind where they couldn't be seen. There were no herders visible, nor any startling amount of grass and no water, except a mud tank thrown up to catch a little spring for one of the camps. They tried to water the horses in it, but it had taken up the flavor of sheep so that not a horse in the herd would touch it. It was too near dark to waste time reasoning with them about it, so old Apling headed them down into a long rock break and across it to a tangle of wild cherry and mountain mahogany that lasted for several miles and ended in a grass clearing among some dwarf cottonwoods with a mud puddle in the center of it. The grass had been grazed over, though not closely, and there were sheep tracks around the puddle that seemed to be fresh, for the horses, after sniffing the water, decided that they could wait a while longer. They spread out to graze, and Beach remarked that he couldn't see where it was any improvement over the tickle grass homesteads. The grass may be better, but there ain't as much of it, and the water ain't any good if they won't drink it, he said. Well, do you intend to leave them here, or have you got some wrinkle figured out to make me help trail them on down to the railroad? Old Abling stood the sarcasm unresistingly. It would be better to trail them down to the railroad now that we've got this far, he said. I won't ask you to do that much because it's outside of what you agreed to. This place has changed since I was here last, but yeah, well, we'll make it do. And that water ought to clear up fit to drink before long. You can settle down here for a few days while I ride around and fix it up with the sheep camps to let the horses stay here. We've got to do that or they're liable to think we're some wild bunch and start shooting at us. Somebody's got to stay with them and I can get along with these herders better than you can. Oh, if you've got any sense, you'll let them sheep outfits alone, Beach said. They don't like tame horses on this grass any better than they do wild ones and they won't make any more bones about shooting them if they find out they're in here. It's a hard place to find, and they'll stay close on account of the water, and you'd better pull out and just let them have it to themselves. That's what I aim to do. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess you've done what you agreed to, and I ain't got any right to hold you any longer, old Apling said. I wish you could. You're wrong about them sheep outfits. I've got about as much right to pasture this ridge as they have, and they know it. And nobody ever lost anything by acting sociable with people. Somebody will before long, Beach said. I've got relatives in the sheep business, and I know what they're like. You'll land yourself in trouble. I don't want to be around when you do it. I'm pulling out of here in the morning, and if you had any sense, you'd pull out along with me. There were several things that kept Beach from getting much sleep during the night. One was the attachment 
that the horses showed for his sleeping place. They stuck so close that he could almost feel their breath on him. Could hear the soft breaking sounds that the grass made as they pulled it, the sound of their swallowing, the jar of the ground under him when one of the horses changed ground, the peaceful regularity of their eating, as if they didn't have to bother about anything so long as they kept old Apron in sight. Oh, and another irritating thing was old Apling's complete freedom from uneasiness. He ought by rights to have felt more worried about the future than Beach did, but he slept with the hard ground for a bed and his hard saddle for a pillow, and the horses almost stepping on him every minute or two slept as soundly as if the entire trip had come out exactly to suit him and there was nothing ahead but plain sailing. His restfulness was so hearty and so unjustifiable that Beach couldn't sleep for feeling indignant about it and got up and left about daylight to keep from being exposed to any more of it. He left without waking up old Apling because he saw no sense in a leave-taking that would consist merely in repeating his common-sense warnings and having them ignored. And he was so anxious to get clear of the whole layout that he didn't even take along anything to eat. The only thing he took from the pack was his ramshackle old pistol. There was no holster for it. And in the hope that he might get a chance to use it on a loose quail or prairie chicken, he stowed it in an empty flour sack and hung it on his saddle horn, a good deal like an old squaw heading for the far blue distances with a bundle of diapers. There was never anything recreational about traveling a rock desert at any season of the year. And the combination of spring gales, winter chilliness, and summer drought all striking at once brought it fairly close to hard punishment. Beach's saddle pony, being jaded at the start with overwork and underfeeding and no water, broke down in the first couple of miles and got so feeble and tottery that Beach had to climb off and lead him searching likely-looking thickets all the way down the gully in the hope of finding some little trickle that he wouldn't be too finicky to drink. The nearest he came to it was a fair-sized rock sink under some big half-budded cottonwoods that looked, by its dampness and the abundance of fresh animal tracks around it, as if it might have held water recently. But of water, there was none and even digging a hole in the center of the basin failed to fetch a drop. The work of digging, hill climbing, and scrambling through brush piles raised Beach's appetite so powerfully that he could scarcely hold up. And a little above where the gully opened into the flat sagebrush plateau, he threw away his pride, pistoled himself a jackrabbit, and took it down into the sagebrush to cook where his fire wouldn't give away which gully old apling was camped in. Now, jackrabbit didn't stand high as food. It was considered 
an excellent thing to give men in the last stages of famine because they weren't likely to injure themselves by eating too much of it. But for ordinary occasions, it was looked down on, and Beach covered his trail out of the gully and built his cooking fire in the middle of a high stand of sagebrush so as not to be embarrassed by inquisitive visitors. The meat ooh, cooked up strong, as it always did, but he ate what he needed of it, and he was wrapping the remainder in his flour sack to take along with him when a couple of men rode past, saw his pony, and turned in to look him over. They looked him over so closely and with so little concern for his privacy that he felt insulted before they even spoke. He studied them less openly, judging by their big gallon canteens that they were out on some long scout. One of them, with some sort of hired hand, yes, one of them was some sort of hired hand by his looks. He was broad-faced and gloomy-looking with a fine white horse, a flower-stamped saddle, an expensive rifle scabbard under his knees, and a $15 saddle blanket, while his own manly form was set off by a yellow hotel blanket and a 90-cent pair of overalls. The other man had on a store suit, a plain black hat, fancy stitched boots, and a white shirt and necktie, and rode a burr-tailed Indian pony and an old wrangling saddle with a loose horn. He carried no weapons in sight, but there was a narrow strap across the lower spread of his necktie which indicated the presence of a shoulder holster somewhere within reach. He opened the conversation by inquiring where Beach had come from, what his business was, where he was going, and why he hadn't taken the country road to go there, and why he had to eat jackrabbit when the country was littered with sheep camps where he could get a decent meal by asking for it. I come from the upper country. Beach said, being purposely vague about it. I'm traveling, and I stopped here because my horse give out. He won't drink out of any place where that's, of any place that's had sheep in it, and, well, anyway, he's gone short of water till he breaks down easy. Well, there's a place corralled in for horses to drink at down at my lower camp, the man said, and he studied Beach's pony. There's no reason for you to bum through the country on jackrabbit in a time like this. My herder can take you down to our water hole and see that you get fed and put to work till you can make a steak for yourself. I'll give you a note. Oh, that pony, ooh, looks like he had, oh, yeah, he had Reem Gervais's brand on him. Do you know anything about that herd of old workhorses he's been pasturing around? I don't know anything about him, Beach said, sidestepping the actual question while he thought over the offer of employment. He could have used a stake, but the location didn't strike him favorably. It was too close to old Apling's camp, 
and he could see trouble ahead over the horse herd, and he didn't want to be around when it started. If you'll direct me how to find your water, I'll ride on down there, but I don't need anybody to go with me, and I don't need any stake. I'm traveling. The man said, there wasn't anybody so well off that he couldn't use a stake and that it would be hardly any trouble at all for Beach to get one. I want you to understand how we're situated around here so you won't think we're any bunch of stranglers, he said. You can see what kind of a year this has been when we have to run lambed ewes in a rock patch like this. We've got 5,000 lambs in here and we're trying to bring them through and we've had to fight the blamed wild horses for this pasture since the day we moved in a horse ain't worth hell room as much as two dozen sheep are worth twenty dollars with the lambs so you can see how it works out we've got them pretty well thinned out but one of my packers found a trail of a new bunch that came up from around three notch within the last day or two, and we don't want them to feel as if we'd neglected them. We'd like to find out where they're lit. You wouldn't have any information about them now, would you? None. That would do you any good to know, Beach said. I know the man with that horse herd, and it ain't any use to let on that I don't. But it won't be any use to you to try to deal with him. He won't sell out on a man he works for. Oh, now, now. He might be induced to, the man said. We'll find him anyhow, but I don't like to take too much time to do it. Just for instance, now, suppose you knew that pony of yours would have to go thirsty till you gave us a few directions about that horse herd. Well, you'd be stuck here for quite a spell, wouldn't you? He was so pleasant about it that it took Beach a full minute to realize that he was actually being threatened. The heavy-set herder brought that home to him by edging out into a flank position and hoisting his rifle scabbard so it could be reached in a hurry. Mm. Beach removed the cooked jackrabbit from his flour sack carefully, a piece at a time, and with the same mechanical thoughtfulness brought out his triggerless old pistol cut down on the pleasant-spoken man and hauled back on the hammer and held it, poised. That herder of yours had better go easy on his rifle, he said, trying to keep his voice from trembling. This pistol shoots if I don't hold back the hammer. And if he knocks me out, I'll have to let it go. You better watch him if you don't want your tack drove. I won't give you no directions about that horse herd. And this pony of mine won't go thirsty for it either. Loosen them canteens of yours and let them drop on the ground. Drop that rifle scabbard back where it belongs and unbuckle the straps and let go of it. If either of you tries any funny business, there'll be one of you to pack home heels first. The quaver in his voice sounded childish and undignified to him, but it had a more business-like ring to them than any amount of manly gruffness. The herder unbuckled his rifle scabbard, and they both cast loose 
their canteen straps, making it last as long as they could while they argued with him, not angrily, but as if he was a dull stripling whom they wanted to save from foolishness that he was sure to regret. They argued ethics, justice, common sense, his future prospects, and the fact that he was doing what he was doing amounted to robbery by force and arms, and that it was his first fatal step into a probably unsuccessful career of crime. They worried over him, they explained themselves to him, and they ridiculed him. They managed to make him feel like several kinds of a fool, and yet they were so pleasant and concerned about it that they came close to breaking him down. What still held him steady was the thought of old Apling wading up the gully. That herder, with the horses, never sold out on any man. And I won't sell out on him either, he said. You've said your say, and I'm tired of holding this pistol on cock for you, so move along out of here. Keep to the open ground so I can be sure you're gone. And don't be in too much of a hurry to come back. I've got a lot of things I want to think over. And I want to be let alone while I do it. That was the first half of H.L. Lewis's Open Winter. Please join us for the second with our next episode. And thank you for listening. <laughs>